Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I'm talking today with, with uh, a phenomenal a hero of mine, uh, someone that I've admired for a very long time. I did an experiment. I reached out to him on LinkedIn, and, and he said yes. So this is great. This is wonderful to welcome to the Into the Impossible podcast, none other than Dr. Scott Parazinski. How are you today, Scott? Great to be with you, Ryan. I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of this uh, you know, podcast with, with you. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I've uh, been very uh, admiring of the work that you've done and all of the stuff you did in Antarctica in particular. That's a, an area where we overlap. So I want to hear some stories from you, too. Absolutely. You know, I, I was uh, before I got to the last chapter of The Sky Below, I was like, awesome. I've been to somewhere this guy has not been. This guy is a literal cosmic voyager. But I've been to the South Pole. And in chapter 25, you're like, one place I haven't been is the South, is Antarctica. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be do something. Go boldly where Scott has not gone before. And then chapter 26, I'm not going to spoil it. Scott ends up there and he finds a very expensive rock. Well, I'm not going to talk too much about that, but uh, I love that story. Uh, it's a phenomenal <laughs> story. Scott, welcome to the Into the Impossible podcast. I remarked to you that you are not the first astronaut, not the second, not the third, not, well, you are the fourth astronaut, but you have a first. You've gone boldly where no man has gone before uh, because you're my first male astronaut to ever come on the Into the Impossible podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really exciting. You know, and it, it's so uh, emblematic of the fact that, you know, there are more and more women as part of the program doing, you know, out on the cutting edge of, of space exploration. And that's only going to uh, increase as as the years go along. So I'm, I'm glad to be the, the first male on your show. Yeah. First male astronaut, I should say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's it's a real treat. And uh, I think the stories that you tell really are, are so gripping. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, turn off the, I, I listen to the book as I do most of the time. I actually have accelerated learning by uh, just doing a 2x speed on most of my audiobooks. But uh, I had to slow it down because there's, first of all, you, you speak relatively quickly at certain points, and you narrate the audiobook, which is a which is a great accomplishment. Uh, but uh, but some of it is just like so gripping. The personal aspect of this book is where I want to turn to because it's not only a story of adventure, of exploration of the indomitable human spirit. Uh, it's a love story. It's a story right. of very tenderness that appeals to me as a father, as a husband. And I want to talk first of all, uh, just get very deep, very quickly, and okay. and ask you. The first time you said goodbye to your wife and, and your son, you know, after already having been in space, right? Uh, and, but saying goodbye to Luke, uh, named after Luke Skywalker, not, not only the, the New Testament <laughs> Luke, but the, the Luke uh, that all of us nerds worship. Uh, but that, that moment, what was that like as a father, as a man, forgetting about this indomitable spirit that you have? What was that like as, a, as just as a human being? It, it is uh, just a, a gut-wrenching um, uh time in, in your life, you know, you, you, you've worked so hard to get to a, a point to basically live out your childhood dream of, of, of going into space. Um, and yet you realize that the, the risks that you're about to take are really significant and, and there are things that you can't control. And, um, and so I think one of the, one of the, uh, the things that happens is just, there's this, uh, um, compartmentalization that, that you have to, you have to invoke, otherwise you wouldn't be able to, to say goodbye to your, your kids. Uh, it's just, um, you, you, you rationalize that the work that you're about to do uh, has benefit to society, to humanity, to the world, and sometimes you know, risks are meant to be taken to, to the betterment of society. And so that's, that's how you, you have to you know, approach it. But if you were to just think about it in terms of, well, I'm, I'm going out uh, to go take a a fun ride, uh, and I may not come back. I'm not sure I would have been able to, to do that without a, a sense of purpose. Yeah, you talk in the book, it's it's so heart-wrenching. You talk about, of course, space flight. You know, we, we lost something like 2% or 3% of the astronauts who traveled on the shuttle. And um, I say, to, you know, I'm a private pilot, nowhere near uh, any of the colleagues that, that in, and the experiences that you've had in, in high-performance you know, fighter jets and obviously on the space shuttle and beyond. But you know, from the perspective of aviation, like no one would get on an aircraft, you know, commercial aircraft, you knew you had a 2% chance of dying. And, <laughs> and you talk about like writing these, like basically a card to your children. 
and and your wife, you know, if you don't make it back and, and how this, what is that ceremony like? Well, what does that feel like to do that? Oh. Well, you really, really are getting right to, to the core. This is <laughs> we'll get to, we'll get to the constipation story I, I, later. I, to deal with these kinds of emotions in a, in a long time. But, but yeah, it, you, you, you write a note to uh, uh, your, your children um, that you, you want them to know that, you know, they were, um, how much they meant to you and, um, and, you know, how excited you are for their future. And, you know, you end up writing these, these things uh, with tears in your eyes, um, hoping that it never ever gets given to your kids. So we have, uh, another a fellow astronaut, um, uh, who is kind of there to support our families while we're on our mission. And we, we give these cards to this person who hopes that he never has to deliver them. Unfortunately, you know, I was, uh, in a similar role in the aftermath of the STS-107 Columbia tragedy. I was, uh, one of the designees and, uh, it's just a, a, a horrific, uh, you know, loss. Yeah. When I think about all the stories that you tell and, you know, just trying to rank all the things that you've done in your life, you're a medical doctor, you're a mountain climber, you're an explorer, you're an astronaut, you're an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about your business. Uh, I usually ask, you know, cause I am such a nerd, but I usually ask my audience, you know, or I ask my guests rather if an alien comes, you know, from, and I know you can't talk about the alien autopsy. I, I promise you that's off limit. Uh Oh, uh Oh, He's flashing it up. He's flashing up the alien gang sign. Uh, but if it, if somebody comes and wakes you up at three in the morning in, in a fever dream and says, Scott, who are you? What, what, who, how do you reflexively answer that question? You've done so much in your life. You're doing so much in your life. This, this amazing you know, project that you're involved with now that um, we're going to get into. But tell me, who are you? Oh, yeah. First off, Brian, thank you very much. You're very kind. Uh, no, I, I, I guess um, I, I'm an explorer at heart. And... Uh, my, my main passion is to, uh, um, you know, try and leave the, the planet a little bit better off than, than when I arrived into it. Um, yeah, I've been very fortunate. Um, and I think you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, you've been incredibly fortunate as well. Those of us who have been, you know, gifted, uh, you know, um, wonderful families and friends and education and opportunity, it's our, our, uh, obligation to, uh, to, try and, you know, help those around us. And so, um, I, I've been around long enough. I'm, I'm pretty old, uh, cresting, you know, this upcoming summer, 60 years old. So I've learned through that pathway through life, what my strengths and also my weaknesses are. Um, one of my strengths I think is, uh, uh, creativity and uh, my inventiveness. And so, you know, I'm, I'm using that to the best of my ability to, you know, create hopefully technologies that help people, um, so it's what I enjoy, but it's also my way of, of, uh, you know, giving back. Mm. Uh, so that's my purpose in life. I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, my parents were very adventurous, uh, growing up. So I lived all over the world. I lived in West Africa, the Middle East and graduated from high school in Athens, Greece. So I had a travel bug and adventurous spirit. And, um, and, and so that kind of led me into exploration, into climbing and to other things, diving, and uh, had this opportunity to become an astronaut. And uh, what I found through my journeys is that when we go to challenging places like you going to Antarctica, uh, you know, when explorers go uh, deep beneath the oceans or up into space, you know, it challenges the, uh, the innovators to uh, gather science there, uh, to support human life there, uh, to, to go, you know, work and do more in those environments. And when you, when you, you're able to do that, you can bring back value to all of us back here on earth. And, uh, so that's kind of in a nutshell, uh, what gets me fired up and, and how I got here, I guess. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So just a quick uh, interlude because this is a part, you're all part of an experiment, not the kind that, you know, Scott used to do on, on living subjects, but you are a, a part of an experiment on clubhouse on YouTube on Facebook, on Twitch, even I think I'm on Twitch. Thanks to, thanks to Jake Kuhn, who's my, uh, Jack, Jake of all trades. It does so much for the podcast. I want to say hi to everybody on clubhouse. Scott is on clubhouse, uh, which convinced me to get over the hurdle. I want to say hi to you folks over there. This is the into the impossible podcast where we talk about, uh, very, very difficult, challenging things that expand the human spirit. We do that with high achievers, performers ranging from billionaires to Nobel prize winners 
And uh, we want to involve you in these conversations. And I look to people like the Joe Rogans of the world, who I love very much, and I'm a, a religious listener thereof. But the one thing I'm claiming I can do that Joe's not doing is involve you guys in these conversations. So please think of questions you want to ask to Scott. How often do you get to talk to a, a real-life spacewalker veteran of seven spacewalks, I believe, five shuttle missions, um, international cooperation with the Russian uh, government? Actually, that brings up one thing uh, that uh, that I wanted to lead off with, which was what I asked Jessica May here. So you and I are talking. You're in you're in Houston right now, Scott. Actually, I'm in Phoenix. You're in Phoenix. Oh, okay, a little bit yep. closer. So I talked to Jessica back in um, in January, about a year ago exactly, uh, just last month, and she was on the ISS, and she had mm -hmm. just completed the all first all female spacewalk. It was really, and I was like, she's actually closer to me, you know, in space <laughs> uh, at over her alma mater than she is uh, when she's in Houston or whatever. So, um, so, so okay. you're you're currently you're you're in Phoenix, but um, but yeah, thinking about the distances and the notion of NASA as a brand. I have t-shirts. My kids have t-shirts. NASA's like the most powerful brand in the universe. Maybe giving this guy a run uh, for his money. This is my SpaceX mug. For those of you yep. on YouTube, I'm Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. Um, so I've got a SpaceX mug. But I think the NASA brand is even stronger. What do you think about NASA, you know, kind of Inc.? Uh, what are your perceptions of that as an insider? It, it's it's seen the world over. Um, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of high altitude climbing, including uh, up on Everest and in the Kumbu region of Nepal, um, in remote parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, you see the the NASA meatball. It's it's ubiquitous, and it's um, I think it harkens back to the 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 triumphs of the Apollo era. You know, when the the planet came together as a whole, it wasn't the United States and, and NASA who who set foot on the moon, but it was humanity that that had done it, and. Uh, but there's a, a, a global ownership of, of that, imagining that you know we could actually uh, you know surmount a, a challenge like that. So I think it's the most, as you say, the most powerful bl uh, brand on Earth uh, and outer space as well. <laughs> uh, but uh, SpaceX is uh, a phenomenal brand as well. I'm I'm really bullish about what they're doing and the uh, the vision to colonize Mars and and do other extraordinary things. Uh, um, it's an exciting time to be alive, right? It really is. You look at the, you know, what happened with the Apollo program, as you just mentioned, and I should say it's, it's really tough. We'll get into Everest hopefully in a little bit, but, you know, Scott is, I think you're the first, maybe the only astronaut to ever climb the summit of, of Mount Everest. He's the second person now. Second so, person now. Okay. But you were the first person to ever do it. And you brought with you a moon rock, which I think is just so exceptional. You know, it's like maybe defeats the purpose. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, they have some interesting rocks up there too. Uh, but I, I thought it was so cool. And you did it in, in a way as a tribute to, to, to your comrades, to the people that got you there. And the thing yeah. I like most about you is I, I kind of feel like uh, it reminds me a little bit about Neil of Neil Armstrong speaking of the moon, speaking of Apollo uh, eleven uh, for a second. Um, do you know what uh, Neil Armstrong? What was his profession? What is the only profession that can top being the first human being to walk on the moon? Do you know what he did after he came home from uh, to, to back to Earth? Uh, well, I mean, he, he always considered himself, uh, first and foremost, a pilot, yes. uh, a test pilot that was his, in his blood. And yeah. Oh, by the way, I got a chance to fly to the moon. Very, very, very humble about it. Yeah. Of course. But no, I, I'm not sure what he would have said to that question. Well, he, uh, I, he, I don't know either. You, you certainly have a much closer contact him, but he did become a college professor. So right, when I, right. when I'm down in my profession, I say, oh, they're, you know, this three hour a week job is so hard, you know, what am I going to do? But, um, but I think back that this is the profession chosen by the first human being to ever go to the earth. And it made me think of something that I associate very deeply after, you know, I haven't known you very long, but I know you, I feel like I know you. One of the most important things about you that I want to take away from this book, besides your spirit, besides these wonderful quotes in the book is that you are incredibly coachable. What I see you as, as, you know, back then, now you're 60, but you still seem like you have that beginner's mind, that student's mind. And I always point out, you know, some of my listeners in Clubhouse are of Russian extraction, and they'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but the word scientist in the Russian language, you probably know this better than I do, having studied Russian, the word scientist means one who was taught. And to me, that means that a scientist or someone with a scientific curiosity should be a teacher, but should also be a student. And what do you say right. about that? Were you just born with that kind of coachability? Like some of my kids have it, some of them don't. Can you train someone to be coachable, trainable, so that they can become a leader like you? Uh, interesting uh, 
interesting concept, and, and thank you for the, those kind words. I, I would con- consider myself insatiably curious. You know, I, I have a, um, and I'm self-taught in many different areas. I'm, I'm probably not an expert in very many things, but, uh, you know, I, I like to challenge myself in different areas. And, and so I like to, as an inventor, I'll digress here for a moment, uh, I like to figure out um, you know, not just the areas that in our society that are broken, but I like to think through, you know, how can we fix those things? And I, I consider the, the best inventors uh, essentially motivated whiners, people who uh, not only identify problems, but then have the wherewithal, the curiosity, the, the, the gumption to, uh, to come up with solutions. And so that's, that's how I, I see myself. But yeah, I think, uh, um, I, I think it is possible to train people to be um, more curious. If you, if you show them the, uh, how exciting it is to, you know, to understand how something works and, and to question, you know, is this the best way we can do this? And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm a physician by training and, um, you know, I, I talk about this all the time when I give keynotes, but, you know, if, if we didn't have a perpetual sense of curiosity, we'd still be doing bloodletting for everything that ailed us, right? We'd just be, we'd be nowhere. Um, and, and think about, you know, our understanding of, of the heavens and, and astrophysics if we didn't, you know, continue to challenge ourselves. Fantastic. So I have my first ever question, and it's fitting that it comes from a good friend of mine, uh, Philip Greenspun, who is actually responsible for me getting invited to Clubhouse. It's a it's a select club, like you know, going to the moon and 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 uh, being an NASA astronaut. I'm sure. But uh, Phil is up on stage well, in Clubhouse, and he is going to ask a question. He's not only a, uh, a an, an incredible friend, but he was actually one of the people who got me the deepest I've become into aviation and was kind of a mentor oh. to me as a pilot and still is. And he's actually a, a, an upcoming guest. We recorded an episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with Philip Greenspun um, uh, about a month or two ago. Anyway, Phil, Dr. Phil Greenspun, how are you doing? I call Phil the most interesting man that you've never heard of. Phil, do you have a question for the good Dr. Astronaut Scott uh, Varazinski? That, uh, that I've actually read, you know, it's much better to talk about books that I haven't read. Um, but I have read Scott's book. And in fact, I read it to uh, one of the kids as bedtime reading. Uh, oh, wow. So thank you for that, Scott. Oh, that's one wonderful. Of the things that really uh, struck me from your book was you said that, you know, humans are suffering a lot of back damage when they spend time in zero gravity. Right. And I'm wondering if you can talk about about that and whether, you know, that's ultimately going to be what uh, limits human ability to hang out in space and do all the stuff that Elon Musk and other people have mapped out for humans in space. Is it our our backs that will let us down? (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible to have when your back throws out on you, but uh, uh, it's a great question, uh, uh, Dr. Philip, and I appreciate uh, your kind words about uh, my book as well. So uh, there, there are a lot of threats, actually, uh, for yeah, prolonged habitation in space. And I'll, I'll just run through them quickly. But uh, radiation, um, you know, when you're outside of the Earth's magnetic field, uh, you're much more susceptible to galactic cosmic radiation and coronal mass ejections and all this radiation flux from around the, um, uh, not only our sun, but from around the, uh, our, our solar system. So that's one big threat, higher risk of, of cancers and, and other sequelae from radiation so to the extent that, you know, when we go to Mars, when Elon you know, gets us to Mars, they're going to have to actually uh, bury the habitats underneath uh, the regolith to shield the crew from, from those uh, deleterious effects. So that's a big, big problem. Uh, another issue is eyesight. Um, our long-duration astronauts are experiencing uh, significant shifts in their uh, visual acuity, likely as a result of increased intracranial pressure. It's uh, it's pressing on the backside of their eyeball, flattening it, and they're coming back with uh, what appears uh, to be potentially uh, permanent uh, changes in their in their vision. So, if if we're to live indefinitely in space, you know, would would this effect stop or or you know, would it cause astronauts uh, to to go blind over time? It's hard to say. Um, and then the, the third uh, element that you raised is uh, is disc disease, and and uh, as as you're probably aware, 
the, the spine is made up of these vertebral bodies, and it, in between them, there's sort of like a jelly donut. Uh, there's a uh, inside the the jelly donut. It's called the nucleus pulposus. Not to get too nerdy uh, about it, but uh, it's it's a piece of uh, kind of gelatinous material that, with a lot of stress, can shoot out, um, tear the this uh, tissue around it called the annulus, and press on your nerve roots. And that's what happened to me. Actually, I I ended up. Um, uh, throwing out a disc on a mountaineering expedition uh, to Mount Everest, actually, it was at 24,000 feet above sea level, and I uh, threw a disc, which is really a bad spot to get injured. But um, I persevered. I, I had to turn around, of course, uh, and uh, came back to Houston and had corrective surgery. Uh, the reason it's happening is uh, without the gravity vector pressing down on our, our spines up in microgravity, um, your spine straightens, and it's also likely that those jelly donuts uh, kind of swell without, you know, the continual gravitational force on the uh, the, the skeleton, and uh, it's tearing the 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 donut, if you will, and allowing uh, the disc to uh, to to fly out. So a lot of astronauts have had uh, both uh, cervical spine, neck uh, spine issues, as well as uh, lumbar disc disease, which is what affected me. Mm. So it, yeah, it, it's a real threat for, for long duration astronauts. And it's, uh, it's very, Oh, so Scott, the, on, on clubhouse, if you wouldn't mind, uh, yeah. you can go up on the stage and then, uh, just mute your microphone so we don't get feedback. But, um, but then people are, um, are, oh, there? yeah, there you go. Okay, good. Okay. Good. So, so, feedback. Yeah, if, there we you go. Just, if you just mute the phone volume, good. Okay. Yes. All right. Great. I follow instructions well. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> you are coachable. That is great. Yes, there we go. There we go. <laughs> okay. So Jake, let me know if that worked. Uh, I want to say that yeah, when you were on the the scenes of you and 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 Mount Everest are, are really thrilling. You talk about your your back. You talk about um, you know this pain, and then the one just hilarious line you're talking about. You know, you had to come down in your first attempt. And you're lying on this glacier and you're like, well, at least it was the world's biggest ice pack. And, and I just feel like you have this you have this good cheer. And I and I think, you know, not to like really uh, I, I'm not going to make the comparison. I'm going to stop the, the mutual admiration society soon. Trust me. But um, but they say, you know, people that survive horrific things in life, whether it be awful prison sentences that they didn't deserve, let's just say things like that, that, you know, the ones that survive we're not the ones that were just like uh, uh, just relentless optimists, like like uh, Admiral Stockdale, a famous example, John McCain. They weren't optimistic, but they went with things. In other words, they would look at a situation. Again, I'm not comparing what you went through. You know, obviously, you wouldn't say it, but but I wouldn't say it either. But nevertheless, to have that kind of attitude of looking towards, well, almost like stoic, but but in a good natured way. Um, again, is that something that you're born with? Is that something you can coach somebody to be? Uh, you know, to adapt in those ways? And if so, you know, what, what age do you have to start? You know, when my kids turn teenagers, is it too late? <laughs> <laughs> well, teens are in the, kind of their own little category off to the side, and then they, they re-enter society a little bit later. So don't, don't worry After about that. After the aliens return their yeah. brains to their bodies. Correct. <laughs> um, no, I, resilience is something that certainly can be trained in. And I think, um, uh, what was it going to say along those lines? Um, I, I think team experiences are things that kind of entrain that kind of perspective. When you've um, you know, overcome challenges uh, with a team and you realize that your impact on the rest of the team is very significant, if, if you have a dour face, if you have a negative uh, perspective on it, you're going to drag the whole team down. Whereas if, if you, the, the glass is three quarters of the way full, hey, we're going to get through this. We just need to uh, brainstorm a little bit more. We're going to keep going. Um, that I think carries the day. And so that, you know, I've been a part of a lot of team pursuits, you know, athletics and, and otherwise. And I, I think that's probably where I picked it up, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so talking about that and teams, you know, part of being, you know, coachable at some level is also being, you know, being a good leader, I think is, is kind of goes in hand in hand. So you can't be a good leader if you're not a good follower. I don't want to, you know, say it in a negative sense. But you talk about some setbacks that you had after uh, Mount Everest, and we'll get back to that in just a bit. Uh, but talk about the setbacks that you faced and the position of leadership that you were put in in the Knowles program and, 
and other things that you uh, that you engaged with that really kind of crystallized your character to make you even more suitable, in my opinion. But I think you're more humble than than I would be on your behalf. If I were you, I'd be a whole lot less humble. Uh, but that's uh, that's just me. So yeah, how do you take those in stride? Those because these are the highest performance Type A individuals in the world. You know, uh, besides some of my colleagues in the in the university. But how, how did you handle that criticism, and how did you use it as fuel to improve? Yeah, well, it, there, there is a, a, a section in my book where I, I really got uh, a, a serious smackdown, and I deserved it, um, quite honestly. And it's hard when you're around other really high-achieving folks. You want to be uh, on your best at all at all times, um, and it, it hurts doubly so when, when you feel like you've, you've let your, your teammates down. And so this is a, an expedition uh, – part of the National Outdoor Leadership School or Knowles where our shuttle crews would get together before a flight and, uh, you know, go out into the wilderness for about 10 days, exchange leadership duties day to day and, um, and learn about each other, each other's strengths and weaknesses, leadership styles, followership skills, those kinds of things. And, uh, I probably had the most experience on expeditions, uh, the most navigation, you know, kind of wilderness navigation skills, and I was in a hurry. I was hungry. Uh, one of my one of my many weaknesses is that when I get hangry, you know, better feed me quick, or I, you know, I, I get very, I I, I never uh, verbally get uh, unpleasant, but I, I just don't want to talk, you know. And, and so I was in a hurry to get where we wanted to go, and uh, in, a, in any event, um, I made some leadership mistakes, uh, poor communication, and I got uh, really dressed down by my spatial commander in front of people uh, whom I was going to be co-leading for the next year and a half. And it was really uh, the most humbling, uh, you know, experience perhaps of my life, uh, certainly in, in the top 10. And, uh, and so you grow from that. Um, and, uh, and so it, it certainly shaped um, my leadership skills uh, every day since that point. Um, and what I, uh, one of the many kind of uh, leadership lessons that I've learned is every person, whether they're the, the youngest uh, noob in, on the team or the most senior person on your, your squad or unit or whatever, may have the situational awareness that will save the day. And so you really need to, to draw out the very best of you know, your multidisciplinary teams. <laughs> and uh, so I've been much more yeah, an active listener or trying to be. Uh, as a leader than I ever have before. Yeah, I interviewed a very famous uh, Navy commander <clears throat> by the name of uh, David Marquet, who wrote a book called Turn the Ship Around. Uh, it's become a classic in leadership. And his second book is called, you know, this is a guy who commanded a $1.4 billion nuclear submarine. And uh, his newest book is called Leadership is Language. And it's all about like these, these mental traps and hacks that high performance individuals like him and you, I'm not going to include myself in there, but we use these hacks and it's really kind of a shortcut. It's sometimes it's beneficial to us. So we'll say like, everybody good to go, right? And he, and he actually uses the example of the, of the Columbia loss where, you know, they, they went around the room and everyone's like, all right, you know, we're good to go, right? And when you ask that question, there's an implicit bias of authority that I have to agree. And it's become, you know, kind of rooted out of the NASA culture a lot more, but it was certainly pervasive. And in those really high stakes, you know, uh, situations, I think it's, it, uh, that's where I want to learn leadership lessons from. And hopefully if you can handle that in a situation like, you know, trying to summit, you know, Everest or being in space when a micrometeorite, you know, comes whizzing by, <laughs> uh, then you could probably handle it in the boardroom when you're trying to roll out, you know, version 3.7 of an app. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have another question uh, from one of our Clubhouse listeners, and I want to remind people we're on Clubhouse, but we're also on YouTube as usual. I'm not giving up YouTube. I love my YouTube audience. Worked hard to build them. And we have a guest by the name of B.F. Peterson. So I'm going to call B.F. Uh, to the stage. And uh, if, you're, if he's there, we can take it. If not, we can come back. We have other people there. My friend Miguel is out there in Clubhouse. If he wants to take a take a stab and get uh, and and uh, step up to the stage again, this is a new experiment for me. But as uh, Doctor Scott opens his book, he says everything is possible until proven impossible, and I think that's really fitting. Especially the name of this podcast is "Into the Impossible," which is a line from Arthur C. Clarke. 
uh, along with his many contributions, including 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, which I'm sure you've seen, or maybe maybe you avoid it. Do you watch movies where people, you know, come to oh, grips? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love sci-fi, oh, okay. including even the the really bad uh, renditions of space, like Armageddon, and uh, you know. Things of that nature. I, I watch them all. Oh, that's great. Okay, so while we're waiting for another question to come up, um, I want to talk about something that you uh, you mentioned in the book. Uh, you talk about uh, you know this 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 notion of of kind of adversarial leadership in the sense that like you all go around the room and say like what did he do wrong? What did Scott do wrong? What did you know? And like you you kind of use the red team approach from the military where there's adversarial, but it's meant obviously in good nature. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, going through that and then, you know, after going through that, I was actually, um, interviewed by a Nobel prize winner yesterday for my own podcast. Don't ask questions about that. Uh, it's kind of weird, but I wrote a book about the Nobel prize and, uh, and, and specifically the flaws in the Nobel prize. And he's one of the characters in the book and he read the book unlike my wife, but, but anyway, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold her to that. I just dedicated it to her. You know, No big deal. Uh, Sarah, if you're out there, but, um, <clears throat> but in reality, you know, he said, well, what's wrong with, because I make the point that the Nobel Prize can only be won by three people at most. And that was never really the design of Alfred Nobel. So when he was, I was hanging out with him, he left his Nobel Prize. So he's oh. not, not going to get that back. That uh, That's mine forever. But he, uh, he said, like, he, his complaint against my book is that I kind of, you know, downplayed competition, or I talked about the negative aspects of competition. And one of the examples I use, you actually mention it in the book. It's the plaque that was carried by the Apollo 11 astronauts to land on the moon's surface. Still there, we hope. Uh, yep. and, and that says, we came in peace for the benefit of all mankind, signed by one Richard M. Nixon. And I point out that the Nobel Prize has a thing on its back, or its golden plaque that Barry, this Nobel laureate who interviewed me, uh, he agrees with it. In other words, it says, um, the Nobel Prize should be given out to those who caused the greatest benefit to mankind. And I said, Barry... If, if indeed the Apollo missions were about benefiting mankind instead of about competition, why have we not been back? Why have we not been back in over 50, this will be the 53rd year, right? Uh, 52nd year in, in July. So what is it about competition? Does it have a place in a culture of, of excellence like NASA where, you know, might even be within the astronaut corps themselves? There's only, it's a zero sum game. You know, if you go on the shuttle, that's one, you know, fewer slot for me. So I guess the long winded way of asking is competition a good thing or can it be toxic? Competition certainly can be toxic, but I think it needs to be used uh, with the right uh, uh, amplification. Uh, it, it can't get to the level of toxicity. Um, and, and I think NASA has always done a, a very good job of that. You know, if you're, uh, I'll just talk about the context of, um, you know, crew selection, for example. Um, it, it wasn't the same people flying over and over again. There was, there was a rotation and, hey, we need a, a spacewalker on this flight. We need a, a robotics person. We need a, a commander and a, and a pilot. And so there, there was a, a, an orderly fashion in which you would rotate back up and get a chance to fly again. But, but I, I do think that you know, competition is what fuels our, our, uh, our economy and, and I think our innovation. If, if you look at I think the wonderful competition that's happening in uh, commercial human spaceflight right now between SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, you know, the, there are other uh, um, vendors, of course, uh, um, uh, Boeing and, and Lockheed. Uh, there's Axiom Space and uh, you know, these other um, uh, space um, uh, companies that will be taking people um, to the edge of space and, and beyond. And I think that's really good. It, it forces uh, companies to, to be more competitive, to drive the prices down, to make it available for all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, Elon Musk has probably already reduced the, the cost uh, to orbit by a, a factor of 10. If we can get it a hundred or a thousand uh, times, uh, you know, less expensive than the space shuttle, then all of us will become astronauts. You'll fly from San Diego to uh, Heathrow in 45 minutes in a, you know, kind of a suborbital ballistic, uh, you know, kind of craft. And so. my, my luggage will get there three days later. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I'll take you it. You can buy new clothes when you get there. Right? <laughs> I've had to do that a lot, even on a nonstop flight from San Diego to Oakland. So, you know, I don't know how you lose luggage on a nonstop flight that's 48 minutes long. But anyway, 
<laughs> Nothing against Southwest Airlines. I'm, I'm not bitter at all. I, those those were not designer underwear, despite whoever stole them. They, they, they're in for a rude awakening. Okay, so we do have a question. Uh, BF is back. Uh, let's see. BF, are you there? And are you prepared to chat with a live NASA astronaut? Okay, let me turn you up. Hold on one second. Go for it, BF. Hi. Uh, uh, thanks for taking my question. Um and thank you, Brian, for this forum. I just kind of wanted to know, you touched on it briefly in terms of teams, the interaction between civilian component, I guess you could call it, the whole thing is a civilian component, but NASA has this deep military history as well and relevance. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm at the gym, a little out of breath. But <laughs> how do you see those these people are going to be embarking on the greatest journey in the history of the world, interacting with each other. I know you touched on it briefly, briefly, had interactions when you got hangry, Um, Mm -hmm. but how do you see them working together? The scientists, the engineers, the roboticists, the pilots, the doctors, and also with that, is there any role that you think would be good to add? poet, artist, do they yeah. bring any value to a situation like that? Thank Thanks you very much. Time. Thank you, Biff. Thank you so much. Hey, yeah, that, that's a wonderful question. And and uh, first off, I would say, you know, for these expedition class type missions, you know, I think you're talking about, you know, lunar outpost, Mars outpost, those kinds of long duration missions that are ahead of us uh, as part of Project Artemis and things like that. Um what what happens is a coalescence of you know there, there's a, uh, a a sense of mission that's shared between every crew member from the commander on down to the the most junior person and uh, by and large uh, there's just a a, a great uh, camaraderie and uh, a sense of purpose and um, self startedness uh, part of it I think is owing to the selection process you know they they select people who have done well on, on teams in the past, whether it's in my background, I, I worked in, uh, emergency medicine. So, you know, working in, in medicine, you've got to be part of a high functioning team or, or really bad things are going to happen. So that was kind of, and, and I'd been a part of other expeditions. So I had that kind of skill set. uh, military operators, uh, bring, you know, that kind of culture as well. And it, it all comes together when you start training together and working together. So it, it's a very natural sort of a thing. But I, I am really excited about the future. Uh, first, I, I think, you know, thinking about suborbital space flight, you know, Sir Richard Branson and, and um, uh, Virgin Galactic and uh, Blue Origin very soon will be flying, you know, artists and, and poets and, and writers and photographers, uh, uh, creative thinkers, uh, even just up into the, you know, uh, suborbital realm, it's it's going to be a life changing, uh, you know, kind of epiphany for for those creatives, and um, and certainly as we start to establish communities on the moon and on Mars, we need the full diversity, the full strength of our our society to be present, and um, and so my my only uh, you know kind of uh, immersion into kind of a. a, a Second culture, and I think Brian, you, you can probably speak to this more than I I could. You've I think you've wintered over at South Pole Station. No, right? no, I'm not. I'm not that uh, insane. But some of my best oh. friends have. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you you know that culture you yes. well. But um, you know there there are about 44 souls who spend the entire winter uh, off the grid. I mean, they have very limited internet connectivity. There's no way in or out for seven to nine months, and they become their own little society. And so having some diversity in that culture is, is really important. So they do have artists and, and, uh, and other types of creatives. And I, I think it's going to be essential yeah. as humanity goes beyond. You know, when we wanted to get uh, somebody to win her over for the bicep two experiment, we put out a job ad and we said, you know, you make $80,000 for the winter and all you have to do is work one night. And we got a lot of people, you know, surprising. Uh, <laughs> we have another question uh, from a listener on Clubhouse. And again, we're monitoring all uh, YouTube. Again, this is the Into the Impossible podcast. I'm your fearful host during these pandemic podcasts. 
the name of Brian Keating, and we have uh, Dr. Scott Parazinski, who has been to space uh, more times than I have children, or, you know, about as many times, <laughs> and uh, spacewalk certainly more than that. And uh, we, have a, we have a guest uh, on the stage in Clubhouse by the name of um, Mustak. Mustak, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Tell us, how do you pronounce your name, Mustak? Uh, it's correct. It's Mustak. Mustak. Uh, so nice to meet yeah, you. Nice to meet you too, Brian. Scott as well. Uh, nice to meet you too, Scott. Yeah, so just my thoughts, Scott. Um, uh, in terms of um, the voyage that we're thinking of in terms of Mars, um, what, what do you feel are the technical and physical obstacles that are there to be able to complete such such a technological mission now uh, in terms of present tech we have? What sort of advancements do you think we need to make to get there, Scott? Is this my very good friend Mustak Patel from, from the UK, by any chance, that I met at Davos? There's <laughs> <laughs> a planted question. No further yeah, questions. Okay. Well, great to hear your voice, my friend. Uh, well, it's great question. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Duck. Go ahead, um, Scott. There, there are many things, actually, that we need to, uh, to develop. We're, we, we can uh, um, certainly visit um, Mars even with the technology that we have today, but I think in order to really successfully exploit, live, colonize on Mars for a long period of time, we need to continue to develop really essential uh, technologies. Uh, one of the things I already spoke to, which is uh, radiation protection, and one of the concepts is to actually build habitats in lava tubes um, underneath the, uh, uh, the crust of, uh, of the planet to, to protect uh, from the you know, cancer and other kind of sequelae from the radiation environment. Um, it's a high dust environment, so developing robust technologies that can allow people to get in and out uh, of that uh, external environment uh, safely without, you know, inhaling lots of dust and maybe causing uh, the equivalent of asbestosis and lung cancers. Um, growing plants uh, and, and living off of the land is going to be very important. Can we extract uh, water uh, from maybe the slopes of Olympus Mons, the tallest uh, mountain in the, the known uh, solar system, uh, 25 miles tall, five, five times taller than Mount Everest. Can we can we extract water to, to grow plants, to drink water, to, to generate oxygen? Um, can we develop technologies that will allow us to get to Mars a lot quicker than stupid chemical rockets that we're using now? So um, this is probably more in your 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 line of, of work, Brian. But uh, you know, plasma physics uh, has has uh, allowed us to develop plasma ion uh, engines that would allow us to continually continuously accelerate to Mars, getting there in perhaps 70 days as opposed to seven to nine months. Mm. So minimizing the exposure that we have um, on that transit uh, to get to the red planet and, um, and, and thus limiting our, our exposure to uh, radiation as well. So there are lots of, lots of cool uh, problems for technologists to work on. What I see when I look at your career and your book, <clears throat> the stuff that you're doing now, which we'll turn to, uh, is kind of this this principle that one of my friends, uh, good friend James Altucher, is uh, kind of an influencer to me, a very famous podcaster and, and just a brilliant guy. He talks about it, we'll call it um, idea dating. He actually calls it idea sex. But basically, let's say you have N ideas, uh, you know, then you can form actually N squared over two you know, roughly n squared over two pairs of ideas. So that's kind of the network effect that Facebook and other things are based on. That things grow, ex, you know, geometrically. They grow as the power uh, of the of the size of the network. So I see you as somebody who's into mountain climbing, has done skiing, has done um, scuba diving, has done obviously aviation and space, uh, medicine, and and now you you kind of turn to this new direction with fluidity technology, fluidity tech, um, to get a new way of getting into the, you know, pilotless vehicle. So in terms of drones, do you attribute that to like, you know, kind of fortune favors the prepared mind in that you have so many different interests, you're, you're so polymathematical, uh, or is it that better to go deep into one thing? Like when I'm, when I'm an emergency physician, I'm, that's all I'm going to think about when I'm an astronaut, that's all I'm going to think about. Or is it better to be broad and have this network effect of what my friend calls idea sex? So what, what is more kind of uh, uh, promotional of, you know, being creative, being successful, uh, being, you know, not being a dilettante like I'm often uh, accused of, but 
you know, how, how do you, how do you balance breadth versus depth? Well, I, I, that's a great question, and and I, I can't say that there's a, a one size fits all answer. I, I just know that I, I'm uh, more along the lines of IDSX and you know ADHD. Um, I, I'm a, a generalist. I, I enjoy learning uh, as much as I can about every environment that I get exposed to. And one of the reasons I I love being an astronaut is I was exposed to. Uh, not just, I wasn't just a physician astronaut. I, I had to know quite a bit about oceanography, uh, meteorology, planetary geology, uh, combustion physics, astrophysics, uh, plant biology. So I dabbled in all these different areas. It was fascinating. I was, I was the surrogate principal investigator on, on the space shuttle or space station. Um, and so for me, that was uh, just incredible candy. And it, it, uh, I absorbed a lot of it, not all of it. And I'm not deep in many areas besides, uh, you know, probably uh, medical technologies, perhaps in, in aerospace. But um, I know a fair amount of a bunch of different areas, and and that's in my toolkit. So that when I see a problem as a product developer, I can call back upon that bit of knowledge, and uh, I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> so my 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 happy space is being uh, a, a generalist. Uh, but there's certainly super high achievers who are, you know, laser focused in one area and, uh, and that's their key to success as well. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So next up we have a very good friend of mine who makes the, some of the intro and outro music for the into the impossible podcast. Uh, it's none other than Miguel Tully. I'm going to, uh, play some of his music and see if we can hear it in the background. I'm not sure. One of his dedicated tracks. Yeah, here it comes up. This is uh, one of Miguel's wonderful tracks that he made for me. And he's working on some space art. We're actually working, I uh, did a podcast with Nicole Stott. Oh, great. Yeah. Twice on the shuttle. And uh, she's an inspiration to me. And she's a wonderful artist. And I started to think, you know, some of the astronauts came back from the lunar surface and they brought back on their spacesuit uh, some lunar dust. And I guess they got to keep it. And one of them, it might have been Edgar Mitchell, I forget who it was. He took the the dirt, you know, on the spacesuit and ground it up and put it into his paintings. Alan Bean. It's Alan Bean, right? Okay, great. Apollo twelve. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it turns out that it's a felony for someone like me to have a lunar rock. You actually had possession of a lunar rock collected by uh, by Neil Armstrong, I think, uh, and you had it for a year. Uh, it was a little longer than they intended, right? On loan only. On yeah. loan, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out you can actually buy. Uh, you can buy actual fragments of the moon that were delivered not by NASA astronauts, but by the United States Postal Service. You know, you can get them on eBay, basically, but they're meteorites. So they landed on the surface of uh, of uh, Antarctica in some cases as your as your wife. Right. That's, uh, that's right. That's what she got her start in. Was she at Case Western or was she at Arizona? She's at Arizona State. She's at Arizona she State. The School of Earth and Space Exploration. Ah, here CC. Very good. Yep. Yeah, I've got very good friends there at uh, ASU. It's a phenomenal school. Anyway, Miguel and I are working on a project where we're hoping to mix in. I sent him some meteorites from Campo de Cielo in Argentina and some, uh, and some lunar material uh, from the uh, lunar surface that I got also on eBay, not from the Apollo. Again, this is from a meteorite that fell in northwest Africa in 2011. Anyway, Miguel, it's a long introduction. Uh, I want to say hi to you and wish you blessings, my friend. Miguel is an Army vet, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's a patriot, and he is an incredible supporter of the show. Miguel, you are live with Dr. Scott. Hey, Miguel. Uh, hey, Dr. Keating. Good to see you on here. <laughs> it's great to be here. Yeah, I had a question for Scott. Uh, just wondering, what is the most cherished piece of memorabilia that you've acquired in your career, either from space or just from your career? Oh gosh, that's that's a cool question. I, you know, um, like uh, probably uh, you and, and many other folks here, we I've, I've uh, given talks, you know, for years and years, uh, and it's rare that you get asked a question that you've never ever been asked before, and that's one of them, Miguel. So I, <laughs> I applaud you for that. Um, so I, I will, I'll give you a, a perhaps an answer that will surprise you, but it's probably the the most worthless piece of uh, material. Um, by by weight or volume or however you'd want to quantify it, but it's uh, um, it has incredible significance to me. Um, on my last trip up into space, I had to 
working with a, a wonderful team of folks, repair a live solar panel. And it was a, a pretty hairy thing to go out and do to work on a, a fully electrified solar panel out at the tip of the space station um, using procedures and tools that had never been conjured up before, using a robotic arm that had never been co cobbled together in this way before. And I was out there at the very tip of the space station, you know, sewing this thing back together. When I came back from that trip, uh, you know, we're all elated that this repair had, had come together and worked so flawlessly. It was really a, a, a triumph for the NASA team. Um, one of the engineers who had worked, you know, through the night, it was like a, it was an Apollo 13 sort of a, an event where people were working around the clock, uh, you know, on mock-ups. Hey, how can we repair the solar panel? And uh, this guy, um, they, they were obviously eating lots of Domino's pizza and drinking a lot of coffee. Um, he cut two little oval pieces of, uh, of cardboard, um, punctured a hole in both of those little tabs, tied a string between it, put a little piece of tape on it. And um, it was the very first prototype of the repair uh, that we would be going out and doing three days hence. Um, and we, we called this thing a cufflink. It was essentially a piece of wire about five feet in length with two pieces of aluminum shim stock that had been you know, carefully cut to fit through the solar panel uh, to allow us to, to stitch the, the solar panel back together. But uh, my, my prized possession is a Domino's pizza box. Here we go. <laughs> Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Ryan Keating and Stuart Balco. Mm -hmm.